Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for your word and for its proclamation, uh, not only that uh, you would come uh, in the world uh, in order to save us from sin and death, uh, but also that you will come again. And Lord, we thank you for the ability to proclaim your word uh, and pray that you would give us the courage to do that which you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, I really wasn't trying to be cute with the name of this class in Acts chapter 20, and that is uh, the sermon that killed a man, uh, because the sermon actually did kill a man. Uh, so we're going to walk through Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered, the we is Paul and Luke and uh, where they are in Troas, uh, were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. That's funny. The word of the Lord. I've never noticed that. Well, this is a great passage and is often looked at not necessarily because uh, poor Eutychus fell asleep during the sermon and fell out the window, uh, but because this is the first time in the New Testament that we are actually told that Christians worshipped on a Sunday. And it actually gives us insight in what their worship looked like when they gathered on the Lord's Day. Uh, because... Uh, in, um, in the Jewish faith, what, what day is your worship day? Saturday, Saturday right? So in fact, um, in certain uh, languages, what's the Spanish word for Sunday? Domingo, right? Domingo, what is it? Somebody in this room has this week's... Sabbath. No, no, that's Saturday. Sunday. Thank you. Jason, Dr. Wallace, thank you. Finally, somebody. All right, so, so even in our languages, so Saturday, Sabbath, that's Sabbath, and then, um, and then uh, Sunday being uh, the Lord's Day. Yeah, the Lord's Day. So that transition seems to have already taken place here in Acts 20, where Christians differentiated their worship uh, from that of, uh, their, uh, of, of the Jews. Uh, in addition to that, uh, you're living in a Greco-Roman world. Remember, that's where Paul is. He's not in and around uh, Israel. And so uh, where in Israel things come to a screeching halt on Saturday, still to this day. I mean, there are some people who are so dogmatic about keeping the Sabbath that there have been incidents over the past several years of if somebody needs emergency services and an ambulance comes into a particularly devout neighborhood, they will stone the ambulance for, try, for violating the Sabbath. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, you worked seven days a week, 
Right? This is before the labor unions uh, decided that's not what to do. And actually, Christianity had more to do with that than anything else. Uh, but you work seven days a week. In fact, Seneca, the Greek uh, historian and philosopher, was very critical uh, of the Jews and the Christians for uh, not working seven days a week. Now, in Paul's day, and, it's, and I think that this is what has happened, even though it's not explicit in the text, it's Sunday night, and Eutychus, he didn't go to church in the morning and have a nice, lovely brunch and then kind of kick it at home and maybe have a little, you know, a little, uh, as we say in our house, a lovely lady lie down and, uh, and uh, make it happen. Uh, and then you might, you know, eventually pull something together for dinner and then you fall asleep on the, on the couch uh, watching whatever it is that, that you watch on Sunday evenings. Uh, no, my man had been working. Right? He's a young guy, he's, uh, he's strong, he's probably in his late teens, and he's been working all day, but he's a believer in the Lord Jesus. So he gathers together with his brothers and sisters, and try as he might, he can't keep his eyes open. Now, before we start judging Eutychus, remember, he's been working, but the second thing is, is that Luke is a stickler for detail. So he's actually unfolding and giving us little hints of, here's what the situation is. So we find that where are they? They're on the top floor of a building, which, uh, where's the hottest point in your house? Top floor, like the attic, right? Uh, or, you know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I know this. Uh, if you ever visit a distillery uh, in Kentucky, uh, if you're interested in bourbon, I'm not, uh, you'll, you'll, they actually rotate the barrels. They'll rotate the barrels because of the heat, uh, the way that heat rises. And so they make sure that they keep moving the barrels around. So they're there. Even though it's nighttime, if you've ever been uh, anywhere in the Mediterranean, uh, and we know this is actually summertime by the math that Luke uh, lays out, it's still pretty hot. Uh, and the, you can feel the heat probably still radiating off of the buildings that had soaked it up during uh, the day. And not only that, but there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Uh, I looked it up the other day because I was thinking about Hurricane Matthew. Growing up, we had these oil lamps and a little wicks. Did y'all have those with the little uh, glass thing on it? And I, and I think it's a miracle we didn't all just explode uh, because, you know, if you drop that thing, it's over. Uh, but they still sell them at Walmart. And, um, and those things crank out some heat. And so you have all these lamps in order to light this large room. It's already hot. It's even harder. And the smell of burning oil is filling the place. Eutychus, knowing I'm not feeling it, goes to the place where he realizes, I get a little ventilation, maybe a little bit of a breeze. I stay awake. But he doesn't. And uh, I do appreciate the fact that it says um, that uh, Eutychus sank into a deep sleep. This is verse 9. As Paul talked still longer. <laughs> well, th this is not, one, a, an indictment against Eutychus. Let me just say that. The scriptures are not criticizing Eutychus for falling asleep. Uh, the, the place I grew up in was filled with... Uh, dairy farms and, and horse farms, the horse guys had it easy. But these guys that were working dairies, they could never go on vacation. They worked 
every single day of their lives. They can't just sort of roll over and look at the alarm clock and say, not milking today, just not going to happen. And that would be really bad if you know anything about dairy cows. And so they would be up at all hours of the morning, and I used to make fun of them because uh, they would all sit on the back pew and they'd fall asleep during church. And I used to make fun of them until I realized I should be commending them for actually t making such effort to get to church. And uh, as I've told you before, I had one usher come to me at 7.30 in the morning and say, right before we were going to start the service, there's a man sleeping in the back pew. What do you want me to do with him? I said, well, is he just sleeping? He said, yeah. I said, well, what's he going to do? And they said, well, you don't want me to ask him to leave? I said, if you do that, you're going to have to stick around for the 11 and ask those guys that sit right over in this area <laughs> that fall asleep nearly every Sunday during the sermon that they have to go to. That's not an exaggeration. Well, so I'm not one who's critical of people falling asleep in church. We don't know the circumstances. In addition, the Bible's not criticizing Eutychus for falling asleep. Uh, but should we criticize Paul for going on and on and on? Uh, around the Advent, we call it double clutching. Uh, and you may have heard it happen. This is something to listen for in a sermon. And, and I actually would encourage you to go up to whoever the preacher is and say, you double clutched. And that is this. <laughs> They've actually finished the sermon, but then they keep going and they end it again, and then they keep going and end it again, and it's just sort of like, you know, a question for 9 o'clock ushers. Do they tell you what the cue is for me wrapping up my sermon, or can you just tell? What's that? See, I just thought y'all were listening closely. All right, Jeff, thank you. Uh, but I notice they start to gather right as I'm winding up my sermon, and I always think they're so smart. They just pay attention. Um, but yeah, if you hear a preacher at the Advent double clutch, but what's going on here is Paul's not double clutching, but let's stop and talk about preaching for a minute. What makes a good sermon a good sermon for you? I'd love to hear it. You're gonna, clear, concise. Clear, concise. What, and also you can say this is, uh, well, maybe you should think of this in Reverend, like what makes a bad sermon a bad sermon? Irrelevant. Irrelevant in what way, David? Right, so right, right. So irrelevant to, to what the scripture readings are for the day. I don't know. Y'all think about it. Sermons that you've really enjoyed. What is the, uh, what is it about them that, that you do? What speaks to us? What Something speaks to us? Something that moves. It connects. Right. There's a connection. Uh, what'd you say, Liz? I said I like you when you're funny. Thank you, Liz. Uh, <laughs> I've got that going for me. Um, one day I won't. I won't be so funny anymore. That's what Frank Limehouse told me. Um, um, yeah, so there are sermons that make a connection. It turns out that the sermon that Paul is preaching is one of the most connective sermons that one could preach because the, it doesn't capture the Greek well enough because actually what's happening is Paul's not getting up and doing even what I'm doing now. He's actually having an interactive sermon. People are actually asking questions. He's gossiping the gospel. Uh, but that's also done in the context of it says here early on, and on the first day of the week, Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, what is Luke talking about? I, this, is an, this is a great, it's whatever you're thinking right now. 
right? Break bread, right? At communion, right? They, they, they were sharing in uh, the Lord's Supper. But later on, uh, we find that, uh, that, that there's a, a, a meal uh, that, um, that would be shared in the early church. It's often called an agape feast, uh, a love feast, uh, where people would actually... So anytime you're critical of potlucks, it's pretty biblical, uh, because that's what happens is people come together and Paul addresses this issue in his first letter to the Corinthians. Remember when he says, you know, you come together uh, and some of you, are, uh, you who are wealthy are hogging it down and not letting the people uh, who weren't uh, able to bring uh, anything, uh, giving them nothing. And so uh, we see they gather on Sunday, uh, they're, they're celebrating and remembering uh, the Lord's Supper, but also I don't think that people were sitting in the upper room of this building, this home, thinking, man, when's Paul going to wrap this up? I mean, that might be true of any other preacher, but look, you can have the Lord's Supper um, uh, without Paul, right? You don't need Paul to do that. But here you actually have a preacher who is an apostle, which means he's had a real encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus, remember when Jesus revealed himself uh, to Paul. So this is not just some good preacher, uh, but this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to actually hear a sermon given by somebody who has met the risen Lord Jesus. So I, I don't know about you, but even really good preachers, I tend to give them benefit of the doubt. Bad preachers, no mercy. Uh, you know, it's amazing... Uh, and that is something that I actually have to repent of, um, and I think a lot of clergy do, uh, and maybe some Adventers, because I think Adventers often take for granted, and I know this sounds self-inflating, but it's true, just how good the preaching is at the Advent compared especially to other Episcopal churches. I mean, anytime somebody has a complaint about the Advent, I want to I write them a little note and says, you are hereby entitled a field trip to go to any other Episcopal church I'll see you next Sunday, right? It just, and that's not to be hypercritical, but that's because there's not the emphasis on preaching that there ought to be in the church today, especially in liturgical traditions. The emphasis is almost wholly laid on the priestly functions of the minister. Uh, I've even heard guys say, well, it really doesn't matter what I preach so long as I celebrate communion." Well, if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. That's just what's going to happen. And here it's very clear that the preached word has a prominence uh, within the life of the service. In Anglicanism, you may or may not know this, you are not allowed to have a service of Holy Communion apart from a sermon. If you celebrate Holy Communion, you have to have a sermon. Now, you can have a, a service with just a sermon. You don't have to celebrate Holy Communion. Uh, but that's because the biblical idea that our reformers took was that the two are, are inextricably linked, right? You have the preached word, but then you have the visible word. And not just the Lord's Supper, but also baptism. Okay, well, uh, I also forgot to mention that, does anyone know what Eutychus' name means? Fortunate. Oops. Uh, and so um, there he is. Uh, there's some thought that as Eut when Eutychus fell out that Paul's words were insinuating, oh, he's really, you know, Monty Python. I'm not dead yet. 
that's not what's happening here. Uh, in fact, who's writing the book of Acts? Luke. What's his profession? He's a doctor. He's Luke knows a dead body when he sees one, uh, and so he's dead. But in a very striking parallel to two incidents in 1 Kings and 2 Kings with the prophets Elijah and Elisha, uh, with young men uh, no less, uh, they raise them from the dead uh, by stretching out over them. And so actually, the Greek here doesn't say that Paul bent down, but it would be better translated as Paul went down and threw himself upon Eutychus' body. Now, I don't think he was doing that with First and Second Kings in mind with the two prophets, uh, but I think here was something that was, a, it was a, a, a time of great joy, a time of great celebration. They were fellowshipping in the Word of God together. And then this young man, full of vigor and strength, is dead. And that's a perfectly appropriate pastoral response to throw yourself on the body uh, of this boy who's just... Uh, who's just died. Um, I think about uh, any time great joy turns to tragedy, like the shootings in Paris uh, not that long ago where people were going to a concert, uh, you know, and then the terrorists struck. And the reason why those types of moments seem so alarming to us is because we think this is not supposed to happen here. This is where we get away from the harsh reality of sin in the world. But that's the reality in which we live, that there's no place on this earth that is shielded from the brokenness of the fall, and yet there's no place on this earth that is shielded from God's redeeming grace, that He can't take something like the shootings in Paris and actually use them to give glory to Him and to make people new by the power of His Holy Spirit. And so uh, the great thing, too, is that they raise uh, Eutychus from the dead, and then uh, what do they do? Uh, they go back up and eat, right? And Paul continues uh, to talk uh, on into the night until uh, the next morning when he boards a ship and uh, goes. Well, let me go back to preaching for a minute. Uh, I know I say this often, but it's always worth uh, repeating, is that two questions that you ought to ask yourself, and we ask this of the preachers here at the Advent, even our Lenten preachers, sometimes I'll, I'll pull them aside and, and ask them these questions. Um, one is, was it, good was it good news or was it good advice? Was it good news or was it good advice? The other question is, did Jesus have to die in order for the preacher to preach what he preached? And if the answer is good advice and no, well, let's go to brunch. Right, let's fold it up. We, we don't need another pep talk. We don't need... Uh, now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be good, godly, wisdom-filled advice uh, in a sermon or that it should be avoided, but anything apart... Uh, from the good news of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit means that all you have left is your own personality and your own wisdom. And if you're relying on that and you're preaching, you're sunk. You're totally sunk. Uh, you might be able to go on for a little bit in that, uh, but ultimately you're going to fail. 
And so we ought to ask ourselves those questions. But also as a listener, you know, I, I, I preached uh, Wednesday night in Louisville, Kentucky, and I preached last night at Holy Cross Trustful. Um, there was an Advent service in Louisville for our friend J.D. Koch at his church, and then I preached uh, the institution of the new rector out at Holy Cross. And I say that not to let you know how much of a jet setter I am in the southeastern United States, uh, but to actually admit to you, I don't like it. I don't like it one bit. One, I feel like I, I just, I don't know. I know what you think I'm a young man, and I am, but uh, I'm starting to feel it. Uh, and, uh, and so all that travel tends to wear me out. But moreover, it's really hard for me to preach to a congregation I don't know. Because I don't know, when I'm in the pulpit at the Advent, I actually feel like there's an unspoken dialogue happening. I mean, because I'm looking out, and I know you, right? I, and I don't look out at you and, and think, I know their deepest, darkest sin, and then move on to that person. I, I'm not thinking that, uh, because thankfully I don't know your deepest, darkest sins. Uh, thank you. Uh, but, but I do... I do know you, and, and, and we have a shared life together. When you go into a church and you don't know the people, that's really hard. You just kind of have to put the gospel out there and go for it and not worry about connecting. And so I get out of the pulpit in these churches, and I think, well, okay. Uh, and, uh, and I, but, I mean, the upside to it is I'll probably never see those people again. And so I, I, I always ask the rector, I said, what do you want me to say that you are not allowed to say? or that you can't say, uh, let me say that for you, because I get to go home, uh, and you have to stay here. Uh, and so I try to be as much help as I possibly can. So there's an engaging uh, with the Word uh, in the preaching moment, that it is actually not uh, just a one-way communication, uh, but in fact, there's an unspoken communication that happens. And praise God, uh, the Holy Spirit is at work through the preaching of the Word. But also other questions to ask, echoing some of what's been said this morning, is the sermon starting with the word and points made are illustrated, or is the starting point the opinion of the preacher illustrating it with the scriptures? Now, what do I mean by that? Lots of preachers will kind of get in their head what they want to preach and then they'll kind of pick some scriptures to, to wrap it around. That doesn't mean that the opinion doesn't come in uh, and that there's not any room for interpretation, of course. Uh, but as has been pointed out, the sermon ought to be rooted in the Word, and you ought to try to make that come alive uh, for uh, the listener. I'm very uh, conscious of the fact that uh, Doug Webster, professor of preaching at Beeson Divinity School, uh, is right there. Uh, and so, uh, Doug, please chime in. I mean that uh, anytime uh, you'd, you'd like uh, about this uh, at about uh, 10.55. <laughs> so, I'm just kidding. Andrew? Yes? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I start, um, you know, well, I, this sermon right here. Let's just do this one that I just preached. By the way, I love Which one? In the Sahara? Yeah. yeah so, uh, the best ones are worth repeating, David. Maybe you come to church too much. What happened to him? Elmer Fudd? I never saw the man in my... He's prime minister of England. Just kidding. Uh, uh, no, I, I've never... 
Yeah. Well told. Yeah. Well, God bless you, uh, Doug. Uh, so for this sermon, I'll tell you, it started when Fitz Allison preached here a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about, uh, I think he said it in this class, he was talking about how we've lost any sense of mystery and transcendence in our culture. And that's all he said. And he was actually talking about maintaining the rubrics in the prayer book. And he compared Martin Luther, the first time he celebrated Holy Communion. If you've ever seen, is it Ralph or Joseph Fiennes? Joseph Fiennes uh, stars in the movie Luther. They capture it perfectly, where Luther was so nervous and anxious that he was shaking and he spilled the wine uh, in his first uh, Holy Communion service. And that was because he was overwhelmed with the holiness of God. Now, the first time I did it echoes what Bishop Allison said. The first time, I was anxious and nervous too, but that's because I didn't want to mess up in front of the bishop. And, and so we're more worried about what other people think than actually what God thinks. And so it started there, and uh, people get very nervous in the sermon when I begin to scribble notes. And oftentimes I'm taking notes on the sermon, which I was, but I, I began to scribble some beginning thoughts um, uh, for my sermon uh, while I was listening. And then um, I knew, and I knew well, mainly because I, I was going to preach on Luke chapter 1, and I was going to talk about the overwhelming nature of God anyway, and uh, what happens when He comes to us. Uh, and then um, I began to write it uh, and um, meditate on the Scripture. I pray a lot over it. Um, Almost my entire Monday is spent just doing that. Um, I get up pretty early in the morning uh, because uh, I got to beat my girls to the punch or I'm toast. Uh, so I tend to get up really early and I'll spend time in the Word. Not always what I'm, I'm preaching on, but sometimes. And things will often come to mind and I'll write those down. And then um, I'll, I'll consult some really good commentaries to see if they can draw things out. So something I, I've not noticed before, I'll be reading, you know, uh, here in Acts 20, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I want to see, what's, I want to see the translation of that. I'll often look. Uh, I'm not a Greek scholar. I can read it, um, and uh, I'll look at that and try to you know, look it up in the dictionary and see exactly what they're trying to get at and try to pull that out. Uh, and then um, I'll write it all out. Uh, so there are some times where I will write a sermon I'm sure this will be a great encouragement to all of you. It's about 8,000 words, and I realize that's not going to fit. And so uh, what I'll do is I'll begin to whittle it down into outline form, and then I've stopped doing this, but um, every once in a while on Saturday night or even early Sunday morning, I've got the sermon. It's done, but I'll actually write it out longhand just to imbibe it a little bit more, just so that I, this is, you know, it's not just I'm conveying information, but I'm actually in the middle of all this. So, um, and I have a lot of people pray for me uh, throughout the week. I think that's absolutely essential. Uh, We're actually going to start here at the Advent having people pray during the sermon, uh, intentionally somewhere in the building. Um, uh, Spurgeon um, uh, actually had people praying underneath the pulpit, down in the boiler room. Uh, of the Tabernacle Church in London, uh, which is right across from the Tower of London, if you're ever in London. Uh, so uh, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, I, sometimes I'll run ideas by Lauren. Thursday morning. 
Thursday morning, yeah, I forgot, Sunrise Centers, Thursday morning, I'll, I'll kind of put ideas out there, and I don't give away the whole thing, but that's a little bit of a preview uh, to the sermon, and I can tell what's going to float and what's not, and what I need to find clarity on for myself. Man, y'all are really getting a look under the hood, aren't you? So, I, and then I do pastor stuff uh, throughout the week, um, and that's, that's really hard, but my experience has been for most pastors, and I have to guard against this, is they will sacrifice that for other things. And they actually don't take the care and attention. And I, I, I need to repent of listening with a hypercritical ear for preaching and ought us to delight in the fact that Jesus is being proclaimed uh, and not worry so much about the other stuff. Uh, but it really drives me bonkers because I can tell when somebody hasn't prepared. And, uh, and that... The seriousness of what happens in the pulpit um, can't be overstated. And there's a little plaque up there that says, Woe be unto me if I do not preach the gospel. And I watch, it, it happens every time. I watch preachers get up in the pulpit of the Abbot and they start rubbing on it. And Frank Limehouse used to say, Don't you go rubbing up on my plaque if you're going off half cocked. <laughs> and, um, and so I hear his voice in my head with certain preachers. Uh, who are not regular to the Advent, but, uh, but you know, don't you go rub it on that plaque. Uh, I, I really do think that. And, um, uh, and that's a good reminder, though, uh, to them. So it's serious business. I mean, I really, it's not an understatement, to, overstatement to say that it's a uh, matter of life uh, and death. And it, people have come uh, to hear a, a word, uh, and that's a right expectation. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that they would not only hear with their outward ears, but that it would be grafted inwardly uh, in our hearts as we pray. So um, there are, you know, I, I think around here we probably need to seriously consider, prayerfully consider the length of our sermons. I don't believe in preaching long for long. I mean, I've heard 25-minute sermons where I wish the preacher would keep going. Uh, I've heard 10-minute sermons where I could have stopped at six. Uh, and so that's not necessarily it, but I do think if you're going to do justice to the text, there is a minimum amount of time to do that, and uh, to echo the words of uh, John Stott, sermonettes make Christianettes. Uh, I think that was John Stott, wasn't it? Yeah. Who was that? Yeah. And um, so when it's, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the other word used here in uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, homileo, uh, where we get uh, the, um, the, serm, uh, the word homily, right, which often finds itself in the liturgical churches. And if I ask you, what does a homily mean, what would you say? A short sermon. But how is it tr uh, translated here in verse 11? And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long time, right? It's, it's a long, earnest talk. So a homily actually is not meant to be a little teeny tiny sermon, uh, but it's actually meant to be a, a long, uh, earnest talk. Uh, and so I'm not saying that we need to preach a long time at the Advent. Trust me, we've got enough going on. Uh, but I do think that if the sermon is being cut short for secondary and tertiary reasons, we got a problem. And uh, let me give you an example of that. I don't know why they do that, but churches will often try to cut corners by eliminating things like the prayer of humble access. Congratulations, you saved 10 seconds. You know, way to go. Uh, 
stuff like that is, is, is not where, uh, where you cut. Uh, the other things to cut, I'm not going to bring up here because this is being recorded. Uh, and, uh, but there are other things that, that you can cut, not at the expense of those things, but actually putting them in their right context and place uh, around uh, the word. Thanks, Doug. There you go. Confessions. Okay, I have no idea where we were uh, when we said that, but that's pretty much all uh, I wanted to say. So poor Eutychus, not his fault, uh, but also let's not be critical of Paul for his long sermon uh, because people were really into it until Eutychus died. And then, uh, when they, um, uh, and then when they saw he was raised from the dead, they went right back to it. Yay! Um, I've actually had people fall out in my sermons. I'd like to say that it was because of the Holy Spirit, but it's normally because of diabetes. <laughs> how, how, and how so I, went on, I went on a stretch. I went on a stretch here at the Advent where three out of four sermons required medical attention for somebody in the congregation. How many people on average do you notice are asleep in a sermon? <laughs> see, this is the benefit of going to the Advent. It's a dark church. It's so dark. I can't see a thing. I actually have a very... It's great in that there's no obstructed view. In my last church, it was very pretty and colonial and clear windows and lots of light, but they were pillars holding up the gallery. So you had obscured views. So I, I didn't like that. And so the Advent, in, in spite of the fact that it's got way too much tractarian influence in its architecture, is still a preacher's church because it's got the slope floor and, and everybody can see the pulpit. But I, I really, I don't know if you've noticed, we used to turn the lights down like Tom Jones was coming out in the pulpit uh, and, and uh, the spotlight. And, uh, and actually, we leave the lights up. Why? Because it's not just me talking at you. It's, it's, we're in this together. I, I have no expertise in uh, sermons or uh, preaching. and I have slept through a few sermons before. Uh, but I, I take care of a lot of preachers, uh, Baptists, Church of Christ, some Episcopalians, a, a lot of different faiths. And I like to sort of keep my clinic uh, light and, and humorous. So I'll talk to them about their, their preaching. And I'll, I'll usually kind of challenge them in a funny way. And I'll ask them, I said, you know, there are two things you got to cover in your sermon before you get down that pulpit. And I said, do you know what those are? And I always get this, like, deer in headlights look. Like, well, why is my doctor asking me about this, this, uh, this question? And I don't know if these, this is the right answer, but it sounds like, you know, you've touched on this. And, and so they'll ask me, well, what, do you, what are those two things? And I always tell them, well, you've got to cover sin, you've got to cover Jesus, or you better yeah. get back up on the pulpit. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the right answer. So no, I think that that's right. I, but what I would, you know, I, I've actually heard, um, I've got a buddy in, in uh, the Baptist church in the African-American tradition, Adam Mixon, who actually pastors at Zion Springs down Fifth Avenue, hang a left at the Popeyes, and they're up there on the left. And it's a great church. Uh, and... Um, Adam talks about how in that tradition, if you don't mention sin and Jesus, you haven't preached a sermon. And he said, but the tendency is that they spend 35 minutes talking about something totally unrelated. And then they'll say, unless we forget, there's sin and then Jesus came to save. And then they say, amen, and sit down. Yes, Libby Spine. I'm uh, thankful that you mentioned what you did about writing down a particular scripture, I do that, and I'm not a preacher, but it becomes more mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So, I mean, that's, you know, I think there's something to be said about Cranmer's prayer, which incidentally is traditionally the prayer prayed next Sunday, uh, but that we would read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. Uh, And in order to do that, you know, it's sort of, uh, the Lord's given me a knack for remembering things, which is not uh, all that helpful in marriage and parenthood, uh, but it is helpful when it comes to uh, it is helpful when it comes to names and things like that. Uh, but if you just read it, you're not going to remember it. You need to write it down. You need to have some sort of association uh, with it. And the same way is true of, of the Scriptures. Preach on. All right. Well, let's pray. We've got some time. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we head uh, through Advent season and grow near to Christmas, Uh, that you would make yourself known to us and that we would look forward with a spirit of expectancy of what uh, you have done in our lives by coming and dwelling amongst us and um, dying and being raised for us. Uh, But also, Lord, that you will come again in great power and glory. And Lord, we pray uh, that we would not take for granted uh, those whom you have raised up as preachers. And indeed, Lord, uh, just comes to mind what uh, Robert Smith over at Beeson says, that preachers preach in order that congregations might preach. And so, Lord, that you would put on our hearts that, in fact, we are all preachers of the gospel who are named Christian. In Jesus' name, amen.